Hello and welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast. My name is Toby Webb and joining me in today's podcast is Joe Fatterini. So how are you today, Joe? I'm on sparkling form. I am actually. I'm genuinely on sparkling form because it's spring in uh, Stockholm where you find me, which is spring in Stockholm is magical because you've had a very long winter. So it's absolutely gorgeous outside. I'm very happy indeed. Oh, excellent. That's the best answer to that question I've had in a while on a podcast. Good to hear. Uh, well, thanks for joining us today, Joe. We're going to talk about a few different things in wine. Um, you have some long experience in the space, and uh, I know you keep up with some of the issues, many of the issues in sustainability. So let's just start out by telling this is who you are. Uh, many of them will know your name, but you've done a lot of things in wine, and you've been working on a new venture, which is quite exciting for the last year and a bit or so. So tell us a bit about who you are and and picks and then let's get into some other conversation well yes you could say i'm not a renaissance man i'm just somebody who's very bad at doing the same job for a long period of time um because i yes i present the wine show so three series of, of the wine show um which is distributed around the world i think it's i'm pretty sure now i think it's the world's most widely watched wine tv programs about 110 countries that we're in um so that's me and an assortment of cavalcade of actors mostly from the crown i think dominic west is about to be the new uh, prince charles in the next series of the crown which caused hilarity when we were filming the last time because he kept being prince charles so we, we travel all around the world but actually deep down i'm, I'm a wine merchant i always have been so i was a wine merchant in, in north of england worked for various wine merchants in the uk Bevendum, matthew clark uh, berry brothers and rods um, sort of went up to the pinnacle there and then joined Pix. And Pix is, um, is now the world's second largest wine selection online. It's a wine e-commerce platform. Um, we tend to prefer the term a discovery platform because it's not a, we don't actually sell wine. Uh, the way Pix works, it's free for retailers, wine producers to list their wines on Pix. It's free for everybody to use it. We don't have any results below a premium fold or anything like that. And it's free to sell through. So we don't take any part of the transaction. What we do is we help you find uh, the closest, the best value, the fastest delivery, uh, and lots and lots of other ways of going and buying a wine that you look for. And a lot of the platform is built around understanding that most of us haven't got a clue what it is we want to go and buy, but we've got a very clear idea of the context in which we want to go and buy it, the sort of price that we want to pay. Often uh, we may have some proxies. We may know that we're having some friends around. So we do a lot of work um, actually from outside the wine world. So a lot of our inspirations within picks come from, for instance, we use collections. So we... You imagine, you know, you've got a big wall of wine. Well, our wall of wine is hundreds of thousands of wines long. It's completely impossible to understand. So what we do is we break it up into these collections, which we publish every day and become searchable. Yeah. Great wines to go and have with pizza. B Corp wineries. If anybody's into B Corps, we've got a whole collection today on B Corp wineries. Um, wines made by women winemakers. So we can imagine, um, you know, Women's History Month, we had lots and lots of those coming up. Um, so we have collections that actually came very much from Audible, which was Audible and Kindle. And we talked to some of the team over there and they explained how it had worked for them. Um, and then we also tag wine. So we don't have, we may, I'm not saying we wouldn't ever, but we don't have customer reviews or scores. Um, not because we don't like them. It was actually because our beta test audiences didn't like them very much. It, um, it turns out that scores tend to get written by people who are really, really into whatever the thing is. So, you know, on Netflix, it was people who are really into movies wrote Netflix scores, which turned off everybody else who just wanted to watch a movie. And the same in wine, about I don't know, one, two, three percent of people are really, really into wine who want to go and write scores. But the 97 percent of people who are just looking for something to have with a barbecue Scores actually are a bit of a, you know, a bit off-putting and and um, and certainly reviews. So we use tags exactly the same as Netflix. In fact, we talked to um, some of the team at Netflix who created their tags. You know, if you go on now, it's like Squid Game, you know, dystopian, futuristic South Korea. We would go and have full-bodied black currants. You know, great mistake. That's that sort of idea. Uh, but in fact, we do have lots of sustainability tags that are in there. So um, the the tags tend to break down into three forms. Uh, particularly the third tag, the, the way we st structure, but we put in 
Um, often things that describe a situation, this is great for barbecues or um, and so on. Some of them are virtues. This is a sustainable winery. This is a bee court winery. This is a female winemaker, essentially sort of virtuous reasons for drinking it. And then there are some which are described as being the, um, the, the, the sort of uh, the de seven deadly sins. So collectible equals greed, um, you know, date night wine, lust. Um, so I always think if you're going to write copy, try and think of either, ideally find one of the seven deadly sins because they tend to be the things that people are most into doing. Um, and failing that, come up with the virtues, which I suspect will come on to in the subject of sustainability. Yeah. So have you yet banned the phrase for your reds, works perfectly with grilled meats? Um, <laughs> we haven't like actually broken... red wine in the world, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yes. We've done so. We have done some really interesting searches. So it turns out the most searched wine term is Prosecco. So Prosecco is the, word, the term that people, you know, of wines that people know about and search for the most. Um, there's been a big shift in uh, the way that people have searched for. What people used to search for, uh, and Google came up with quite interesting work around this, would be they used to look, people used in the past to go and look for somebody who was a recognised expert in a thing. So they would go for highest rated Prosecco. There's been a subtle shift in search results. And actually now people are looking for the best and people have, they've moved away, you know, like Michael Gove, you know, have had enough of experts. There's an element of truth in that, actually. Some people have had enough of experts. And what they do is they essentially crowdsource expertise to just say, well, what's the best? And I'll kind of figure that the wisdom of crowds is giving me that answer, which essentially means that the best Prosecco is probably the most valuable search term for wine on the Internet. Um, sort of work it through. Um, weirdly, one thing we have found is that it would appear that when people are searching for things because of the way that um, there's a relatively limited understanding around wine, because it's not part of most people's daily lives, is that they're often searching for things that are proxies. So sort of, you know, great with kind of grilled meats and so on is sort of, well, that's a sort of posh dinner. If you say to people, you're having a posh dinner, what wine do you want? They're actually much more happy with that kind of an answer because that was what they, they wanted. The really big insight, and this is absolutely trailing a lot of things and, and it builds into sustainability, is that most of the time, most people aren't looking for a good thing. They're looking for a guarantee that it's not shit. Mostly, most people, most of the time they're looking for wines actually don't want to find the best. What they want is something that says, I promise you this won't disappoint you. And that disappointment, we think about it in terms of flavour, actually it's a whole series of disappointments. It's financial disappointments. Um, it's social standing. Uh, it's, you know, face. It's embarrassment. It's serving the wrong wine on the wrong occasion. So going around to somebody's house and you know, I mean, classic example, you know that they're into, you know that they're a vegan. You don't want to go and take a wine which they can't drink. So you go and search for a vegan wine. It's guaranteed, doesn't matter what it tastes like, to be honest, it's guaranteed not to be shit in that context. So a lot of things that people look for, you know, wines that have been, we have a, a sort of, on the platform where it's wines that we've featured in our editorial publication it's called the drop the reason things are like it's not because they're good it's because if somebody's got skin in the game so much that they've recommended it it's not gonna be that bad is it somebody has said i'll put my hand up for that wine and that's where those things become you know very worthwhile so when we look at um recommendations like inside a tip if I'm going to speak to somebody and essentially I want to get out for why they might not like it, actually, that's really powerful because I've got to sort of, well, it can't be that bad. It's an insider tip. And so sometimes that kind of psychology, we do a lot of the work around behavioral science. And actually, one thing I hope we do is to find stuff out in behavioral science that we can then apply actually to the bigger, grander, more serious problem of sustainability, actually, because we're just using it to make money, um, not make money so much for us, actually, but drive people to retail. But, you know, we're using it in a, that sort of purely commercial realm. I think many of the insights of behavioral science can be applied very, very valuably to sustainability as well. Yes, I would hope so. Um, although one has to be careful about how we do that. I've, I've worked with um, someone who's very senior in behavioural science, uh, you know, a PhD, and so on, who worked with some of the world's largest brands. And he said to me a year or two ago, 
this whole thing about nudge, you know, the nudge unit, nudge economics, doesn't just doesn't really work. And I didn't really, it's one of those conversations you have at a conference, I didn't quite have time to understand why, but he seemed very serious to have studied it for a long time. He said, really, you've got to do, you've got to do bigger stuff than that. And we're still working out what that looks like, which is one of these fascinating comments you hear from someone, and then you just want to spend hours following it up and don't have the time. So it's really interesting to see how this stuff evolves. And frankly, if you guys can, can make a dent in that when it comes to sustainability in consumers and wine, that could feed into many other aspects you could actually save the world joe that's what i'm saying to you right it's all down to you um, <laughs> i'll get out my cape that's what i need i put my underpants on the outside of my trousers and uh, get a get a tea towel and i will because it's also sustainable because i'm not buying a new new outfit and it's no. not made it is i don't have any man-made fibers so yes i'm going to be sustainability man Excellent. Well, let me ask you the fundamental question then, um, which we, we did talk about earlier. We haven't really planned this podcast, but I did say to Joe, I wanted to ask him this earlier. Because I, in, in, in some time in sustainability that I have spent, um, in every industry I work in, you have what I've always regarded as a, as a sort of misnomer, which is propagated by people saying, well, it's all up to the consumer. We've got to get the consumer to buy sustainably. And if we do that, then everything else flows from there. And my argument for many years has been to companies no, the consumer is enormously confused and doesn't really know what sustainability means. You've got to stop doing as much bad stuff, albeit by accident, as possible and start promoting enhanced, better choices. And let's see where that leads and go from there because we're not there yet. Do you think in wine we can get the consumer to lead the change in sustainability and can that be something other industries can learn from? Yes, I think we can, um, but I think that the we have to have an understanding of of human sort of human nature, um, and actually, wine is a very good example. Every so often, I've seen people saying about you know why do people go and drink? Well, if you ignore sustainability just for a moment. Why do people not go and drink? Uh, slightly better wine that is tastes considerably better and we have that sort of standard thing the fixed cost of wine mean that actually you get a massive increase for spending an extra quid why do people not do that and often the answer comes back well they don't they haven't been educated enough they need to go and do a wsct course then they would understand it's a terrible answer it's absolutely dreadful you don't get people to sort of do other things by saying well you better go and do a course on it because then you'll know People don't, you can't ask them to be sort of logical, you know, it assumes that human beings are a little bit like computers. So if you just feed more data into them, then they'll go and make, you know, you'll have sort of better outcomes. And actually, much more interesting thing to go and do is to understand that you know, what is it that motivates and drives human beings? Let's go and find ways of essentially working around the back. And the example I mean, I, I sort of use in, in the world of sustainability was, um, it was the example, you know, I think we can sometimes look outside the world of wine. It was the example in Sweden, where I am right now, um, of how essentially social shame had reduced the number of people who are flying on internal flights, people taking more trains. And it was this known as thing that flee scam, sort of flight shame. It's essentially, you can create a word that captures some general social ill. Sort of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very easy, catchy way of shaming people into not going and doing something. Then you can go and have... And the, of course, the net result was this was pre-pandemic. It was that um, internal flights dropped by about ten percent in Sweden, and it was the commensurate you know drop in internal flight emissions. And then there became the talk street that was um, train pride was the thing, and people would tweet themselves saying, "You know, I'm look at me, I'm taking the train, I'm full of talk street." And that was, that was their thing that they went. That becomes one of those interventions which is very behavioural. It's very sort of psychological. Um, it's a kind of a nudge. And I think I'm absolutely with people who say that nudge theory can be overdone. You know, the replication crisis in social psychology generally suggests that we've probably overstated the results of lots and lots of things, particularly if you want to sort of demonstrate them to with a, you know, p-value of 0.05 and, you know, they, they sort of jump in. But I think that there are nudges you can make like that that are useful. Is that more of a sharp elbow than a nudge then? That's what it sounds like. Um, to a degree. I mean, I think one of those really interesting areas that comes into is um, 
what is a sharp elbow? Because it's a sort of moral relative, sort of moral relativism. Actually, this is a generally kind of good idea. There are things that people generally go and do. I mean, you know, what we need probably in the world of, of wine is wine's Tesla. You know, it's a prestigious, highly regarded, aspirational consumer brand that happens to be an electric car. Um, one of the challenges is there's a slight, you know, hair shirts and ashes approach sometimes to sustainability. There's also a certain Ludditeism, I think, sometimes that we see. I do worry that sustainability in wine, and I'm not knocking them, but I do worry that it's tied into a slightly Rousseauist, noble, savage view of the world, that the only way that you can go to go and have any progress is essentially to go back in time. And largely to sort of say that winemaking before about 1926 was morally acceptable. And we should all go back to that. Um, I mean, for one thing, it goes and excludes vast numbers of people from the world of wine. You know, wine is, has become a generally widespread consumer product, it gives enormous amounts of pleasure to lots and lots of people. Um, to go and say, well, to be honest, you can only go and buy wine from little flippity you know, wine merchants, you know, wine growers who are growing two hectares in the Loire Valley and they're doing it in this kind of way. I think that is, it becomes very rapidly, it turns wine back into a very, very exclusive product. Um, but you know, Tesla shows us that you can go and create an interesting brand, very aspirational, very, very desirable, that largely goes and works towards a sort of widespread, you know, slightly broader social benefit. And we have, I can't really think of, off the top of my head, brands, luxury brands, or even, you know, moderately, you know, I, I slightly loathe that term aspiration. I think it's sort of slightly unpleasant. Is it? <coughs> no, I wouldn't say I'm a Marxist. I'm just sort of helping out at weekends, but you know, there is, I think one of those dangers is it becomes kind of exclusionary. I, I can't think of any, you know, nice, elegant, hugely attractive, um, sustainable brands that, you know, lead in the same kind of way, largely, you know, mostly the sort of luxury, smart trend brands, the, the sort of slightly for want of a better word, aspirational brands, um, tend to be a bit old school and they come in big glass bottles. You know, I'd love to see somebody make a big virtue of the fact that it was bulk shipped and packed in Newcastle, you know, wherever it is, County Durham. Um, you know, that is a phenomenal way of reducing the carbon emissions of a bottle of wine, is to ship it across in a big tanker, fill it all up into UK recycled glass somewhere outside concert in County Durham and then um, you know shift it around the country on railways that makes a huge difference there are sort of smaller parts as well I mean, I'd love to go and see more people buying wine by the case um, you know essentially if you, particularly if you're going to have wine home delivered bring it in the case because one guy turns up once with one case not coming in it's that last mile of wine consumption it's usually by far the most polluting in, in many ways so i had you know there are issues around the way sustainability has been slightly hijacked i think by people who have got a slightly different agenda um and you know we look at organic and biodynamic as being quote sustainable in some ways they are in other ways they're not you know it's um, they're different issues sorry i've, I've rambled off now no, it's fine. Just to pick up on your, your point about uh, differentiation, you know, most wine is sold, let's say, at under $10 a bottle. I don't know the exact figure. I mean, the price of average price of a bottle of wine in the UK is sort of somewhere between six what, quid. Six quid. So let's say most wine in the world is sold for under $10 a bottle. Is that a fair statement to say? Yeah, certainly in the world. I mean, in America, I think the average price of a bottle of wine is around $15, but America has unusually got a slightly higher sort of lift. Germany's cheaper. UK is around £6. So there's lots of tax built in that. I live in Sweden. I think here it's probably a little bit more. It's probably about seven or eight quid, something like that. So, yeah, but you know, you're absolutely right. It's under $10. So it's that, that if we want to have an impact in the sustainability of the product as a sector, that's really got to be where we, where we focus. Um, and I think it, it's a good point. We need to differentiate that because that's almost a totally different product, isn't it, from your two-hectare romantic Tuscan biodynamic producer um, of Brunello, you know, who I happen to adore. Um, that's It's almost a completely different product category to me. I mean, should, should we start thinking of it that way? Because we tend to lump it all together, and I'm not sure that's helpful for either one of those categories or subcategories you're absolutely right there's a slightly sort of weird analogy i think came up the other came up i think it was yesterday the day before um one of i think this is 
is both a benefit and a challenge is that much of this debate you know in public happens through people who have a voice in public so you know people in the media people who are wine writers and so on are very important ways of going and transmitting that message out to the sort of wider audience um the challenge is the, the that voice isn't necessarily reflective of the 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 sort of wine industry in aggregate it doesn't perhaps talk to the, to the majority of, of wine consumption give you a sort of weird example so I, I probably have possibly i mean certainly in terms of monthly columns I'm, i know i've got the most widely read monthly wine column in the uk because it's read in the biggest monthly magazine in the uk the problem is that nobody ever thinks of saga magazine as being particularly interesting because it's for people over the age of 55 and so what you end up with sometimes is here's this completely hidden away column that is hidden away. And yet it is the biggest monthly subscription magazine in the United Kingdom. Um, now, I read a thing sort of yes. Now, you know, sometimes when we think about big voices and why we forget who has really big impacts and, and where are those big impacts? Largely, if you want to go and change the way that people drink sustainably in the UK, mostly talk to people over the age of 55. They are the big drinkers of moderately premium wine in the United Kingdom. They're certainly the biggest drinkers of wine in general. And yet we see lots. Go, this is targeted at millennial consumers who are, have got a, you know, committed to sustainability. We're already con con committed to sustainability, although I think there's some considerable doubt about those, the data around that anyway. But actually, they're a relatively small part of that audience. Um, you know, we also, funny, it's this column yesterday and I, I saw it. The average price of a bottle of wine out of the five recommended was £90, which is more than 14 times the average price of a bottle of wine in the UK. Now, most people are drinking wine that costs between about five and seven quid. To be honest, your average price is £90. You're talking to a very rarefied audience. Where we need to go and make big impacts is people drinking wine between five and seven quid. That will go and make a change. I'm delighted if a Burgundian producer selling wine at 200 quid is going and doing, I don't know, carbon recapture or something, or, you know, is using a horse to plough his vineyards. I mean, that's amazing. What's really going to go and make a difference is changing bulk shit Malbec that people are having, you know, on Sunday lunches. Where we should go and see, you know, where a big media intervention would be, would be, I don't know, a character on Coronation Street who suddenly gets really into insisting that they're going to drink boxed wine and not bottles because the, you know, carbon emissions of shipping boxes is lower. That actually is a sort of media intervention that's going to have huge impacts, certainly a much wider reach than me, you know, any sort of wine writer going and saying, you know what, wine that comes in a bagnum from La Grappan, it's really delicious. And it's also a, you know, very environmentally friendly way of, of a more environmentally friendly way of going and shipping wine around. So I think sometimes it's slightly stepping out of that wine bubble. And it is a wine bubble, that, you know, that we go and have and looking for those, those different interventions. We know what the answers are. Let's face it. We don't need a whole lot more conferences going and working out what it is that makes wine, you know, sustainable or not. And I'll be honest, wine's original sin is that we don't drink it where it's made. We just, we just don't. And even if we do drink it where it's made, often, certainly in the UK, the emissions of UK wine, okay, I grant you don't have to drive that far, but you know what, it's sparkling wine, it's really premium, it's in a heavy bottle. It's not, you're not solving the problem by going and drinking UK wine. Even if we only drank UK wine, we'd suddenly drink out the whole of the UK. It's what, about 5.5% or something of UK wine consumption. So it's always going to have an environmental impact because we drink it from somewhere else. What are the macro ways of going and reducing that original sin? It's always going to be a sin product. It's never going to be perfect. So, yeah, transportation is clearly a factor. We've all seen these assessments of the carbon footprint of a bottle of wine, and obviously it depends where you're shipping it from. But the base load power for glass smelting or recycling is, is, is probably the single biggest input, I would suggest. Um, and that's a problem that's going to be solved not by the wine industry, um, but uh, by um, by others. Um, so I wonder who you think can drive the change towards the majority of wine coming in lower impact packaging. Let's say we were able to pick a price point, and actually I don't think we 
can we can pick a probably a price range because it's context specific of, of and, and, and underneath that range or within that range wine shouldn't be in glass now that isn't going to be a consumer decision because everyone likes glass who doesn't like a glass bottle the, the reason it survives so many centuries on is it's beautiful packaging um nothing comes close but people like the bib wine company in the uk uh, have, have produced really lovely looking bags bag and box wines now where you think oh that was on my kitchen counter i'd be quite proud of that but you know they, they've only got small sales uh, although i wish them more so who's going to drive that change you mentioned the media is it going to need to be the retailers who simply say as part of our carbon footprint approach as part of our shift to net positive wine is one of the things we have to do and it's slightly lower risk let's face it than palm oil and some of these other commodities beef and cotton and soy and all these other things we have to deal with that we sell so why don't we just do some choice editing and 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 really push the sale of better looking packaging to consumers is is that what needs to happen to make the difference in that bulk wine segment and of course there's lots of other things along the value chain like, like bulk shipping and so on but do, is it going to take retailers to, to, to do something like that to show the way forward because I wonder what else it's going to be if it's not that. And benign Stalinism and some good copy, I think, is going to be a magical solution. I mean, yeah, I'm speaking to you from a socially democratic country, famously the only country in the world that voted essentially for communism for 80 years. Um, you know, in Sweden, it's a, it's a monopoly alcohol system. So the, the, the monopoly, the, the, the retailer, there is only one, was essentially able to go and make a sort of benignly Stalin decision that, no, actually what we're going to go and do is go very strongly into, into boxed wines. So, you know, you meet every white... I, mean, I remember meeting, I think it was Miguel Torres years ago, and we were walking around one of his warehouses, and, it, and of course there's enormous numbers of boxes, and it was quite a smart one of his wines, I think. It might have been some Grand Coronas or something. And he made, made us all sort of promise that we wouldn't let on that he put it into boxes because it would ruin the you know the sort of market perception of the wine in bottle-only countries. He said, I only do it because I'm forced to. Now, I can buy Amarone in a box. And the sort of notion of buying Amarone in a box in the UK seems completely mad. Well, I'm going to buy it in a box here, and lots and lots of people do. Amarone, as it happens, is a sort of weirdly popular wine in, in Scandinavia. I think that um, what it may come down to, if, if supermarkets, particularly, I mean, it's going to be, you know, we're talking about you know, volume retailers. If they really mean like M&S, there's no plan B. Or if they, I mean, it may even come down to some of the commitments they've made around some of their certifications. Actually, this is a fairly easy win. Now, where the clever copywriting comes in is you have to sort of change the perception of it. There's no logical reason why wine tastes less good because it comes in a box. It might have done back in the day. See, yesterday was the, I mean, what we're talking, the 21st of April, I think the 20th of April, uh, might have been, but 21st of April is the birth date of, uh, it, what's the name, Ango, who invented the wine box. I think it's his birthday. It's the anniversary of his birth, either today or yesterday. Um, now, when he first built it, it was, you know, made out of old petrol uh, bags or something like that for carrying diesel. Now it's a very different thing altogether. Clever copy needs to go and change it from a thing you put up with to a thing that you actively seek out and use to display some sense. So I mean, my wife and I both have coats over here where it actually says on the coat, this is made from recycled materials. And it's a sort of status symbol to have a coat that's made from recycled materials. I have some trousers that are made of a tree. I think, some kind of tree fibre. It's terribly soft and lovely. Being able to flip round that, that perception alongside somebody who says, and I'll be honest with you, I'm only going to give you that choice, you know, for these wines. Because it's potty. You know, the volume of wine that's drunk within 24 hours, somebody going and buying it and bringing it home, it's the overwhelming majority of wine. I can't know what it is. It's like 90% or something. Why do you go and then have essentially... What we call it sort of 17th century technology um with a probably even older you know sort of roman technology closure 
that's been designed around the fact that it allows you to go and store it for several years. I mean, it does seem sort of potty. So I think that's sort of a combination. But we do need to change the way that people think about it. Actually, the change is going to happen entirely in people's heads. It's just changing the frame of how they look at the thing. And then they go, oh, right, yeah, I'll go and that, that, that makes sense. I'll go and do, do it that way. What I don't quite understand is how we enable that shift from wanting glass to wanting best-looking bag and box. Um, and I think maybe there's just not been enough good-looking bag and box type packaging next to glass for people to make that choice because it's been the sort of styles of Chelsea Hardys on the bottom shelf, the joke wine your grandma drank, you know. Um, that's the that's the reputation of box wine in the UK. So perhaps it takes retailers to put them side by side and offer people choices for a while rather than taking that more Stalinist approach. I don't know. I am being benign Stalinism, but is that sort of sense of... I mean, certainly, when, I think when we're thinking about people in supermarkets and, and you know, sort of multiple retailers, to a degree, it's a bit of a faff to go to another shop just because you want to go and buy a bottle. You know, the reason people go and buy lots of wine in malts, in, in multiple grocery, is because they want to buy everything in the same place. They don't want to have to go and flog off somewhere else. So actually, you know, in a way, well, not, they don't want to have to go somewhere else. Give them a very attractive and, you know, sort of meaningful reason why to go and do stuff. And look outside the world of wine. I was talking to somebody before, they'd gone to Finland in the middle of winter. And there's a famous sign that used to hang outside Helsinki Airport that said, you came to Helsinki in the middle of winter. <laughs> it's horrible here, but you're badass. <laughs> it sort of flits around this sort of notion of why you go there. I think we want to go and, and actually, rather than being terribly po-faced about the choice of buying boxed wine, what I'd love people to go and do, I'd love to see Kevin Shaw of Stranger and Stranger designing a staggeringly attractive box. I mean, something so good that people would want to go and keep it afterwards. And to then kind of flip around the idea of going and serving fine wine at a smart dinner um, for people. It was years ago, it was a friend of mine, who was one of our directors actually on, um, on the wine show, and he had to go and make an ad for a, what sounds slightly disgusting. It was a reformed chicken piece. It was some... And the idea was that you could sort of make all kinds of different things just with these reformed chicken nugget bits. So you could make a Thai green curry with them, or you could make a pie, or you could make you know, all sorts of dishes. And the way they sold them, the, the ad had all these food Instagrammers, all these beautiful dishes, I mean, really gorgeously laid out dishes, all with these chicken pieces in them. And then people clambering all over tables to try and get the best angles. It was all about cook the thief, his wife, her lover kind of look to it. And then at the end, of course, was this Australian voice said, come on, Australia, just eat it. And it, it was kind of funny. It played up against, you know, aspirational food and so on. And I'd love to see that sort of work. I don't think we will go and make big changes in sustainability, certainly in wine packaging and indeed in many of the things around wine by bludgeoning people over the head with facts about how much better it is for them, the environment, you know, whatever. That then becomes kind of nimbyism of wine packaging or of, of wine, you know. It's sort of, well, no, I think it's totally acceptable. I think it's fantastic that people go and have these much more sustainable wines and more sustainable packaging, just so long as I don't have to do it at my dinner party. What we want to go and do is to work back from the dinner party. So when you've got a very smart occasion where there's an essentially the risk of social embarrassment at serving sustainable wine in a sustainable way let's work back from there and say okay let's start at that point and create a format a frame of thinking that goes this is not socially embarrassing in fact it would be almost embarrassing if you did serve it in a bottle you beast furiously ruining the planet just for your own social lack of embarrassment you know i think that then can become something quite you know, a bit more entertaining do you see a time when um your site uh, online retail let's let's talk about online retail for a second here could simply say well here's your bottle of um cote de Rhone 2017 for let's say it's a good one 1099 um but if you want that in a box his, you know, that's next to it, and you'll get, let's say, a two and a half litre box. You'll see this, see the savings, see the carbon savings, see whatever sustainability information they want to show. Do you see that turning up on retail sites in the next three, four, five years? Because that seems like a logical way to bring this in for retailers. That's, 
you know, enables them to test it? Or, or is that just too naive an approach? No, not at all. I think it's a, it's a very good one. There is, a, I think, one of those challenges is that are we preaching to the converted or are we converting, you know, the sinner? And I think when we generally when we're preaching to the converted, that sort of thing is brilliant because you're simply just actually by availability bias, the sort of availability heuristic of going and saying, well, if you bought this, you would save x amount is incredibly powerful and in fact technically it's not that hard to do i mean i say that our cto will probably go mad ultimately you can do anything and one of the joys of going and working in e-commerce is that anything is possible it's just a question of time and resources um this is going to sound slightly sort of arcane but we take feeds in from retailers using um, the, the same format of feed as a google merchant feed one of the reasons we do that is it's quite a simple feed. It comes through in a sort of XLS format, but it's also almost endlessly um, variable. You can add in new fields. So we can put in there, tell us what soil types this wine was with. Tell us what the carbon emissions of this particular packaging are. So we can add in all of those. And in fact, what we do is the richer the feed, the higher up those results fit in our overall search results. As a sort of proxy for trustworthiness almost within retailers. So we can say, if you were to tell us, Mr. Retailer or you know, Mrs. Wine Producer, what the carbon emissions were of your wine or what sustainability information you had around it, you will sit higher up in natural search for terms like Code Rome. So it becomes kind of a virtuous circle. Then you can start playing around with it because then you can go and ask the machine to go and do comparisons and you can sort of say, well, actually, this one over here is, you know, got fewer carbon emissions. You could then go and say, if you bought it in the box format, because we've got boxes and bottles, take something like La Vieille Ferme, comes in boxes and bottles, the box is, you know, X amount better. I saw a brilliant example the other day. It was for a library. And this, um, the when you checked a book out, it would tell you, as a cumulative thing, how much money you've saved by taking the books out of the library than buying them. And this guy, I think, had saved something like $1,200 because he'd used the library, not buying all the books. An amazing kind of thing. You, know, you can build in that kind of information. It takes time. It, you know, we sort of, we should say to everybody, don't just ask us to do it just yet. We're only three months, not even that, two months out of the gate and, uh, and still sort of building the, the platform. But e-commerce allows you to bring those things to the surface and, and start mucking about, playing with it. Amongst the things we do at the moment is um, we add in whole layers of data. So we can put in all the B Corp wineries and then it becomes searchable for B Corp wineries. Uh, we have our tags that sit in there. So this was a thing that we took from, uh, from Netflix, actually. It turns out you know, people don't, we, when we do our testing, it turned out, you know, people didn't really like um, consumer reviews in the same way. What they really liked was little tags. Now, within those tags, the third one is kind of how does this contribute to my life? Now, it could be this is a great barbecue wine, which goes really well with steak. But at the same time, it could be that this is some form of sustainable winemaker. This is a B Corp winery. This is organic, biodynamic. Uh, it can be all sorts of, of things like that. So we can add in all that information. So it becomes then searchable or it becomes a feature that you as a producer want to highlight um, in, your, in the way your, your wine works. Our bigger challenge then is how do you convert this, the, the sinner, the person who's, because the majority, if people who want to buy sustainably probably already do. We're going to save wine by converting all the people who, you know, are probably just a bit agnostic. I just don't know. The this is where I'm not sure that's right. Are we going to convert them or are we just going to remove bad choices over time? Yeah, probably will increasingly remove bad choices. Um, getting there is interesting. I, I did an event at the House of Commons. It was before the pandemic and was chatting away to uh, two parliamentarians, one from the House of Lords, one from House of Commons. They were both from the northeast. Neither. There was a, it's a wine event. And there were both members of the all-party parliamentary uh, group on wine and spirits. Neither of them knew that the seat, so baronetcy that they, or baronetcy that they represented, uh, had Europe's most environmentally sustainable winery in it. Um, and so neither of them realised that the, the, the 
I think it's Greencroft, isn't it? They've got their big rebottling plant, which has solar panels and it's got wind power and it's incredibly sustainable. It's got lots of water recapture and it's taking all this bulk shipped wine and it's putting it into um, right weighted uh, glass that's been UK recycled and it's going into, you know, putting in things in the boxes. Neither of them knew that that was in their constituency. And you suddenly go, crikey, parliamentarians don't know these huge, I mean, it's hugely important for the UK wine business, that sort of bulk and reshipment. You know, I give credit, Kono Sur and Konji Toro, who use it very heavily, massively reduce their carbon emissions by bringing wine in that way. And indeed, I, you know, I've been to Connoisseur's winery and it's a very sustainable winery out in, in, in the vineyards. They, they fertigate using goose feces, um, which I once remember seeing. They have lots of geese. They have an amazing system there, only as a bit of an aside. They put these geese out in the winter and there's an insect that's quite nasty. They've got this brilliantly clever system. They put a bit of cloth with, I think it's like with Vaseline or something, around the trunk of the vines. It turns out this insect hates getting its feet sticky. So it climbs halfway up the vine and it gets its feet sticky, goes, ooh, like this. and then they put these geese out. And the geese spend all winter eating these insects. And so they'll get fat on eating this, whatever it is. And then the, the, the feces, they then go and use to fertigate the vines. But slightly on side. You know, if we don't, we, we have to go and make sure that parliamentarians are aware of the right sort of solutions that we go and get support in those local constituencies to go and have, you know, more of those kind of bottling plants, you know, Avonmouth, people like that. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's a combination of those factors, isn't it? Um, so I was just looking at PIC. So your business model is effectively like affiliate, right? So I, I find, I just found Listen uh, Zinfandel, um, Listen Zinfandel um, on, on your site, uh, and I clicked through it, I could buy it from a retailer, and then you get paid that way. That no, how? don't get paid at all that way. Uh, we are entirely agnostic on the transaction, so we don't take any part of the transaction at Would all. Do you make any money? <laughs> this is a very good question. Imagine it works exactly the same way as Google. So that's this is our, our sort of structure. Now, we actually don't have keyword bidding, but we are contextual bidding is the sort of term. But the idea will be in about two years' time, maybe less, year, year two years, um, you, if you, I was Ridge and I was selling Litton Springs and I knew I wanted to go and uh, push it, you know, wherever you are, then what I can do is to make sure that that would appear as one of the sort of recommended offers. The other thing that we do have actually is with a lot of winery associations and also some sort of core brands. It's essentially I'm the world's biggest wine shop manager. Well, I, I think technically I'm the world's second biggest wine shop manager. Um, but when we get more things on, I'll become the world's biggest. It's exactly the same as a wine shop. I have to merchandise that store. And in the same way that Ridge, whoever it would be, or Wines of Australia might say, well, look, I want to go and have a wine. I don't want my wines to be in imports. I don't want to be in Australia, Victoria, Hunter Valley, Barossa. Um, we do work with winery associations to say, right, OK, well, let's make sure that there's an Australia shelf and there's a Barossa shelf and that all the producers in Barossa appear on that shelf. Um, and, you know, Francia Quarter, there are, I mean, we're only in the United States at the moment, there are 30 French Quarter producers who export to the United States. Let's make sure that all those 30 are there, that all the information about those wines is correct. So that's our first sort of revenue stream is to sort of say, right, let's make sure we merchandised you. Um, and that's a, quite a big lift, actually. It takes quite a lot of people to so have a big team of people who do that work behind the scenes. So, so for those unfamiliar with evolving business models of e-commerce who is actually going to pay you for what just clarify. Uh, brands and uh, regional associations in the first instance to ensure that their wines are correctly merchandised so it's, it's um, about profile and positioning on the site uh, so you pay more get more exposure that's where you mentioned the google model yeah we got to make money somewhere okay we do and i think certainly in the case of wine and this does have sort of impacts the margins on wine are pretty slim I was talking to somebody the other day and the, a competitive platform, I won't say who it is, but a competitive platform charges 15% on transactions. He said, 90% of my transactions, I don't make 15%. So I'd make a loss selling through that. So to sit in the transaction is, is 
is wrong it's something apart from anything else it's kind of impossible because then transaction margins are very are very slim there's too many middlemen already to yeah. certain middle people and, and partly i don't want to go and charge consumers to come and visit the site because actually i want this to be everybody to be able to come in so i want all the results to be free all the time so i want everybody to be able to come and list their wines for, for nothing i want everybody to be able to come and find the wines for nothing and you don't have to pay you can find any wine you want and you can sell any wine you want for nothing no money at all all we're saying is if you'd quite like to go and have it looking really smart and nice and you want to sit you know essentially at the head the front of the queue yes you can go and pay to go and make sure that your shelf looks really really nice uh, and that shelf could be a brand a treasury something like that sort of key brands that we work with or an individual winery uh wenty for instance you know, have a really nice wenty shelf um and there will be some elements and you know these will become interesting ways of going and, and working for brands and indeed they may have I think impacts more widely around sustainability. We're doing, um, it's a proof of concept more than anything else. I made a very brief TV, half hour TV episode with Dominic West from The Wire and The Affair and the new Prince Charles and the Crown. We filmed an episode in Bulgari in Tuscany with the winery there. And one of the things that they're doing is putting that free to air in lots of different formats. So that can go out into you know, YouTube, it can go onto Instagram, Twitter and so on. So it'll be out in May. And you can go and buy straight from that site. In fact, it goes out to air car, airports, departure lounges with a little QR code. So you watch the thing, you think, I'd quite like to try that. You click on the QR code, it takes you instantly to picks, and you can go and buy the wine there and then. And that closed loop becomes very, nobody else has ever closed that loop of being able to say, oh, this is interesting. Oh, I can go and buy it. So if you see an Instagram influencer, one of the great problems that both the influencers has and indeed those they influence is you have to remember, and I saw something the other day, you have to remember that Cadel Bosco was the wine that they tried. And you've got to remember it was Cadel Bosco. You've got to hopefully go and find a retailer who happens to sell Cadel Bosco. What Pix allows you to do is to have a swipe up, go to Pix, finds the retailer closest to you who's got Cadel Bosco, the person who's got the best value deal on it, the person who will deliver it to you quickest or indeed the producer you can buy it from. Um, so that sort of answers a problem that's never really been solved before in wine. And it, it moves away from then just being a kind of aggregator platform to being more of a utility because people then start saying, actually, I, I'm not just going to wait to get traffic from picks. For me, it's in my interest to send traffic to picks because some of them might buy from my DTC site, my direct consumer site, Others might just buy from the retailer who's down the road. But I didn't even know they were there, particularly in the US where you've got this three-tier system. Often retail, often producers have no idea who's selling their wines. Um, you know, and so then you, you might even have a sustainable winery and sort of say, well, here are our members. Here's a film about sustainable wines. Go to Picks and you can go and find all our members here. And so you can kind of close the loop in that way. You can buy the wines today. You know, that's the thing. Very interesting. So that's that's what I wanted to move this, this on to. So let's... Let's say a few years' time, you've got the millions of consumers, you've got the, the traffic, and you've got the digital footfall and the sales coming through the site to, to drive revenue from the, those brands and others who want to position themselves on the site. What Clearly, you're, you're already covering sustainability in the drop. I've just been seeing some really interesting stuff there. You've covered it since you've started. What would be helpful for you then in terms of criteria to understand how you can promote sustainable wines? Because... You've already mentioned that you're aware of the drawbacks of organic, biodynamic is kind of half science, half weirdness, um, and not always suitable for vegans. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and then there are other bizarre eco-labels, which I think will disappear, you know, uh, carbon neutral, all that kind of thing. So what would you need in the future when you have the traffic to actually um, to convince consumers that what you're selling is sustainable? Well, just for anybody listening, we've got sort of two things. We've got picks and part of picks, but sitting at an arm's length is a thing called The Drop. And so The Drop is our own publication. It's like an online magazine. I never know what they're doing. So we have this really strict editorial thing. So they, But it's brilliant for us because what they do is they get, they're producing editorially independent content. And actually, I can go and look across and see what the, the team are writing about. An amazing team. And then go, crack out, I never thought about that. And particularly when they're writing around things like sustainability issues that kick in. With things that, and then what they do is they link the wine. That was kind of interesting because when they write about a wine, let's say they go and write about, you know, vegan wines, then to go and buy them, you just click through to picks and you find where the wine is and you can go and buy it direct from the site. So it's shoppable content, as they say. 
Um, within PICS, we did um, an R and we looked and we asked lots of questions about, well, what criteria would we go and need? The sort of key part is that this needs to be, essentially for us, what we want is, I have to be sort of agnostic. In a sense, I, mean, I might have my own views about biodynamics or you know, whatever systems there are. But if it matters to somebody, then it matters to me. And But the key part is, is there some kind of objective criteria criterion for going and having people you know carrying that thing so uh, where we've gone and had things before is you know our first pass is is there some kind of a membership scheme for you lot you know demeter or soil association or whatever it is um is there some kind of label you've got there's an interesting one where we were looking at volcanic wines now this isn't necessarily a sustainable thing but it's a an interesting category and in Italy, there is now a volcanic wine designation. Well, that's amazing for me because it's not just me going, well, yeah, I suppose they're volcanic. Somebody somewhere has said these are volcanic vineyards. Brilliant. I can now go and tag you or you know, have something in there that connects you as being searchably volcanic in your criteria. We'll largely go and take anything on. I think it does have to be rooted in some degree of objective science. Now, that raises an interesting question, because then, you know, is biodynamics rooted in any kind of objective science? But it is also a membership association. We, we have to make a call on some of those things. But largely, I think most there are a lot of certifications. Um, I do hope that and I remember you telling me, wasn't there? There was something like how many were there that you once counted? It was nuts. It was like 40-something. Yeah, I mean, there, it depends how you define it, but there, there are around 40. I've heard 36 banded around. There are others coming out all the time. Of course, this is the purpose of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, and as you know, Sustainable Wine is the online magazine of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, and that's one of the things we're working towards with the members, um, including some of the world's biggest retailers, is what does a unified approach look like? Because uh, I think everyone's saying it's getting out of hand, and too many regions are self are self certifying themselves as sustainable, without bringing in the full value chain or the full life cycle, uh, and not necessarily joining that up with other regions. So that's kind of part of the ethos of the SWR is to say to someone like Pix, in two or three or five years time, we if if, if someone is a member of SWR, that gives you a certain amount of. Um, uh, of reassurance that the right number of boxes along the value chain are, are being ticked and the right amount of work's being done to make that wine regenerative and so on. That, that's, that's the direction we want to head in from a global point of view. It certainly makes life for us much easier because, you know, when it comes to going and having various searchable terms and so on, you know, having a sustainable catch-all and it could always go and be with some sort of qualifications and so on. I mean, essentially, all I need is a big sort of like a big spreadsheet that says that all these people or all these products qualify as, you know, X. And that's the joy of computers. You then sort of feed it in. And it's not quite that straightforward. Um, but there is at least an element where we can go and feed that in and we can go and build up the, the info. And what we particularly like, as we said, are producers who across their range submit to some form of certification. Wines that year by year may or may not, by individual skew, individual product, they're really problematic because the machine has to sort of learn, you know, which ones are, which ones aren't. And then you get into all sorts of, you know, mucking about. Um, we can feed all that information in and we and then then we can play around with it. And actually one of our jobs is, you know, we see everything. So we see all the sort of data, we see what people are pushing through. And you can find some really interesting stuff. So for instance, our little collections. So these are the collections that look a little bit like if you're buying a Kindle or an audiobook, uh, audible audiobook. It's a categorization. Could be B Corps. One of the things we know about the site already is that about 30%, almost a third of our traffic, is not people visiting PICS, it's people finding that collection somewhere else. Interestingly, one of our board of directors uh, was the chief consumer product officer at Twitter, and he said exactly the same thing happens with Twitter. I think it's now most of Twitter's traffic comes from Twitter tweets that are posted somewhere else, like in newspaper articles that drive people back. So what happens is somebody finds an article about B Corp wineries on Twitter or on in an email or in somebody's email signature, whatever it is, clicks and they come in the site. And the amazing thing is once people are inside those, 40% of them click through to an endpoint retailer. So that's 
that becomes quite a powerful insight because the events are to say, right, rather than us just waiting for traffic to come into picks, a very powerful way of increasing the sales of, quote, sustainable wines, whatever categorization, is to create sustainable um, collections within picks, share those with audiences who might likely find those interesting. So, you know, the Soil Association goes, here's a whole series of wines that are certified by the Soil Association, you know, Demeter or whoever it would be knowing that once people are in there, there's only 12 wines and they go, I can choose from 12 wines. That's actually kind of easy for me because we've overcome the paradox of choice. And I think that is a problem in sustainability is that we're now reaching the paradox of choice. You have so many different sustainable things. Well, which one do I choose? I, couldn't, I can't work it out. I'll just go and drink something that's been made with, you know, diesel something horrendously unsustainable, you know, I'm going to go and have a bottle that's been carved out of ivory from an elephant. Um, you know, if you give people too many options, they just go, oh, no, I can't be bothered. Throw it all away. I'll go and start over again. By going and reducing that down and saying, here's a simple way of choosing that. Now, we don't need to wait for people to come in. To be honest, we can do, we'd already do that today. You go and share that. In fact, I'll go on afterwards. I'll go and share Christina Mercury's B Corp collections because the conversion rate out of that is amazing because it's 40% of people go to an endpoint retailer because they go, this is brilliant. At long last, I would have never known which one to choose, but I've only got 12 to go at. So, I mean, it can be as few as five. We, we tend to do between five and 12. Um, That's great. I mean, it, it really sounds like we're making progress here. I've always been a bit sceptical of the B Corp thing, but I, I did some work with Jancis and her team judging her Sustainable Wine Awards, and I looked at a lot of entries were from B Corp wineries, and I actually think for a certain company size, certain organizational size, it's a brilliant thing, actually. It's not perfect, but it's manageable, and you can understand it, and that's really the key. Uh, where I get a bit worried is, is sort of the larger companies where they've got you know, a mix of um, of influences, shall we say, on them. And, and, and I wonder how well it lasts. But um, that's a really interesting innovation that you're starting to play with. And I'm starting to think, it's, it's making me think about how this is going to evolve in the future. You know, to get us out of where we are at the moment, which is sort of stuck in this trap, aren't we, of, of, of classic organic, some biodynamic, which is pretty small. Then you have the whole sort of natural wines. And then you have clean wines, which everyone's got very upset about in the wine Twitterati in the last few years. Um, uh, and actually, I, will be, I will be absolutely... Now, we're not afraid of sometimes putting our head above the parapet around things. So two of the things that we have put our head above the parapet around, one is that we don't take what we would tend to sort of call bottom feeder retailers. So one of the things that we wanted to overcome is things like virtual inventory and people are essentially just undercutting the market. Now, if you work on the basis of somebody going and you, you get this sort of virtual inventory where people go and put a product up that they don't have, but if they get a click for it or an order for it, they'll then go away and find it and they'll sort of bring it in. Um, but often by just undercutting everybody else. We don't take that. It has to be a live feed with inventory that we can go and see that the product is, is in there. Um, so we've dropped, I mean, I can tell you, I, I, I won't say who it is, but I have dropped a retailer from the platform for going and bottom feeding and just essentially undercutting the rest of the market. Um, the other thing is we, we did take a line against clean wine just because we think it's, it's, it's dishonest. It's, it's wrong. And so what we I mean, I have written about clean wine, I, I think I wrote a piece saying that it was a sort of camera and it, it was, uh, what I said, it, it, it was worthy of an Oscar. I said it was amazing marketing. <laughs> it was totally wrong. It's for the buyers. I was quite pleased with that article, actually. Um, so we, you know, we we are prepared to go and take a stand on some of those those kind of things. So I'm not saying absolutely everybody can kind of come in, but you know, we do want to be able to think through. And I think you know, one of those bits we are from the wine business. One of those big distinctions in, in the world is certainly wine tech. You know, people get very cross about wine tech. Somebody sort of said there were two word, two words that should never be put together. Part of me slightly railed against it. So of course they should be put together. You know, why would we not go and have innovations in one part of the world? The other part of me is understands entirely why somebody would say that wine tech shouldn't go together because I think largely it's been led by tech, not wine. So I certainly, not that I'm saying we would never do it, but I don't have a lot of time for palette matching apps, if I'm brutally honest. I think palette matching apps, not that they're not clever technology, not that they're somewhere and somehow nefarious, but they rest on a tech belief that here's an amazing piece of technology, let's apply it to wine. What they're not based on the fact is that when people drink wine, they tend to drink it in pairs, three, four, five with their friends, and they drink different wines depending on the context. 
So the fact that a palette matching app sort of can come up with an answer, well, yes, but do I have to make everybody who comes around to my dinner party go and take a palette matching app? And then I've got a weird Venn diagram of the one wine, which is always going to be either Kiwi Sauvignon Blanc or Malbec that everybody will be prepared to accept. It's bunk, you know, Provencal Rosé, well, I might really, really like it in July in Provence. It tastes pretty rubbish in Wakefield in February. It just doesn't really fit. So when we look at that coming together of wine tech, I think what the wine world needs is more wine people who are tech savvy than tech people who are going, well, I quite like wine, so I'll just go and apply my tech. And in sustainability, that's very true. We have to think, you know, we need wine merchants who've had success in persuading people to go and buy wines almost irrespective, who then say, how can I apply that insight that made wine really attractive, really thrilling to somebody, and just make it for sustainable wines in whatever flavour they are? And we should be looking to treasury, accolade, you know, Casella, big you know, in some cases, what people might almost consider the sort of demons of kind of sustainability, sustainable wine. They're really, really good at selling wine. We want to go and look to them and indeed outside, you know, Amazon, Google, Netflix, whoever it is, and say, what are the lessons that we can then go and apply to making, you know, our own wines really exciting? Um, you know, one of those ones is, I think we look sometimes for big grand macro solutions. What's the what's the golden bullet? What's the silver bullet that we can go and do? Suddenly goes and becomes game changer. Any changes will happen through essentially this phrase atomic networks. A group of people who have a real life connection with each other will go and make a change that will then go and essentially infect or become viral with other groups of people. That becomes a, a powerful way of going and doing it. And everybody. Oh, so I'm going to get, I'm on a high horse now. Can we get over the idea that storytelling, in this case, everybody, you know, I was, I was about to say, we need to tell better stories about this. The problem is that the story everybody tells is my wine has less carbon coming out of it. And that's not a story. It's not a story. If, before anybody, before you ever say to anybody listening to this, before you ever say we need to go and be better at storytelling, go and write, read uh, John York's Into the Woods uh, about this sort of structure of telling stories. Stories are tension, build up, payoff, essentially. It's about going, building up some tension around uh, essentially a, a quest that somebody has to go and overcome, going off into the woods, there's a sort of fork in the road, where do we go? You know, it's a sort of three-act structure. That's telling stories. And what we need to, now you can tell a story in a sentence, you can tell a story in two words, venison's deer. That's a story, build up, payoff, you know, sort of tension, release. It follows three acts, even in just two words. What we need to do is to tell stories where we build up a thing of how am I going to do it? Oh, it's like this. The hero goes away. It's not telling lots and lots of facts about how good your carbon emissions or your vineyards are or your soil quality or anything like that. Um, that's yeah. not telling stories. I, I think that's completely right. And one of the things I've been going on about for ages at various conferences and meetings I run is that um, I was in Riga in Latvia two years ago um, and I saw a QR code on a banana that said, point your phone at me. And I thought, well, I've got to do that. And before I knew it, I was in aug augmented reality video walking around an organic banana farm in Colombia, watching workers who supply bananas to Dole Foods process organic bananas. And you could even go and look into the plantation. Um, and it wasn't perfect. I was immediately watching it going, uh, where's the living wage certification of what they're being paid? Uh, where's the chemicals information? Yeah, there were all sorts of problems with it. But I've spent done quite a few sessions and podcasts with uh, the head of sustainability. He's also the head of comms for Dole, which for them is a perfect mix. Um, and the numbers are phenomenal in terms of the consumer engagement in this. And it is by no means perfect. But why can't wine do something like that? And to your point, it should be telling the story of generation regeneration. Where are we, the family, the land, the people, the challenges, the solutions, not carbon emissions. It's the story and actually, you've got a perfect example. So there you've described the, you know, essentially an augmented reality journey. 
uh, that is towards a sort of towards sustainability. Largely, you know, people are concerned about bananas. Bananas very there, there are ethical issues that I know people sometimes have around bananas and so on. So you can see it answering the problem. Now in wine, we have had some very successful augmented reality brands, particularly 19 Crimes. Now, one of the problems we sometimes have with wine is people go, oh, 19 Crimes don't like that very much. You know, it's big brands, it's not necessarily sustainably made, all these sorts of views. Except it's staggeringly successful. And a large chunk of that comes down to the augmented reality app. Now, you have to sort of dig around it. And what is it that makes is not actually the, the app. It's not looking at the thing. The incredible thing about augmented reality is it tells you at what point did somebody go and run the augmented reality? How? What's the profile of the person? I know Apple has changed its privacy data, but you can still find out certain amounts of metadata around the sort of person who's running the app, what kind of people, how often do they go and do it, what occasions. And amongst the things that I remember when um, when they first put it out, one of the things they found was that they had some Dun & Bradstreet data, or not, um, not Dun & Bradstreet, it was uh, Tesco club card data, which was showing that one of the big consumer groups was buying the wine were middle-aged women. And so, well, this is actually targeted at young men. They then went and looked at the data of people using the AR app, and it was often around Christmas, and I think they were able to correlate it against people's birthdays. And it turned out that this was being gifted by mums for their sons. So suddenly you sort of get this really interesting story of a sort of closed loop through the fact that there's an augmented reality app that sort of sits in the heart of it. Right, could you do something similar to go and find out what it is that appeals to people around, you know, sustainability on a sustainable app, you know, on a QR code? It doesn't need to be an AR label. It can be a QR code on the back. You know, you can do it on the front of most labels, I think, with AR data. Because then you can find an insight that allows, because in the case of 90 Crimes, what it showed them was that they needed to advertise the product as a perfect gift opportunity in good housekeeping. I think it was that they went and ran with it. You'd have never thought of advertising a brand targeted at young male drinkers, you know, 20 something men advertising in good housekeeping, except it turns out it's exactly the right place to go and gift it in the two months running up to Christmas. Those are the sort of insights and the kind of closed, interesting loops of of information that you, you go and find. Sometimes I do worry that in the world of sustainability, there's sort of moral purity about, you know, we need to keep morally pure that says, well, I don't particularly want to be going and stealing the lessons of 19 crimes because it's not a brand that, you know, sort of sits well with me. Steal the information, go and find out, you know, find it and reversion it for the world of sustainability. I think there's a lot to be learned there, isn't it? Just as um, wine at different price points for different markets can't be seen as the same thing doesn't mean they can't learn from each other in terms of what they can learn from smaller brands and what and smaller brands can certainly learn from the experiments of those of the like of 19 crimes and so on. Joe, this has been fascinating. We've been talking for quite a while, um, but we're going to do this regularly or at least semi-regularly. So let's do that. Um, I will let you go for now. Thank you so much for the insights. This has been fascinating. Uh, listeners, if you want to know more about Pix Wine, just go to your browser, type pix.wine. You'll find the drop. You'll find um, the various wines uh, on show. And we look forward to seeing the development of that. And next time we speak, let's, let's dive deeper into this because it's such a fascinating subject. So I shall switch off the tape now. But Joe, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. 